The scripture reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 9. John, chapter 9. Now as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind? This man or his parents? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with the saliva. He smeared the mud on the blind man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the blind man went away and washed and came back seeing. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and caused him to see was a Sabbath. So the Pharisees asked him how he had gained his sight. He replied, He put mud on my eyes and I washed, and now I am able to see. Then some of the Pharisees began to say, This man is not from God because he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such a miraculous sign? So again they asked the man who used to be blind, What do you say about him since he caused you to see? He is a prophet, the man replied. Then they summoned the man who used to be blind a second time and said to him, Promise before God to tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, I do not know whether he is a sinner. I do know one thing, that although I was blind, now I can see. Then they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he cause you to see? He answered, I told you already, and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You people don't want to become his disciples, do you? They heaped insults on him, saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We do not know where this man comes from. The man replied, This is a remarkable thing, that you don't know where he comes from, and yet he caused me to see. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is devout and does his will, God listens to him. Never before has anyone heard of someone causing a man born blind to see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They replied, you were born completely in sinfulness, and yet you presume to teach us? So they threw him out. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to be up here again for our final week looking at disease in the scriptures. We've been in the middle of uh, a three-week series uh, by me <laughs> looking at what the Bible has to say about disease. Um, and, you know, considering uh, that, you know, we're, we've been in a pandemic for ages, um, apparently our, our, our president uh, was diagnosed with COVID recently too. It's just like, it's everywhere, right? Um, and uh, it's, it's times when we face disease that we, we often find ourselves questioning God and saying, why does this stuff happen to us? Um, and my, my hope is that in this final week, looking at scripture, particularly looking at the Old Testament, it will help us see God more clearly. That's my hope, that we'll see God more clearly through this time. Um, 
you know, I have a, a certain person to thank when it comes to my love of Bible study and the scriptures. And it goes all the way back to when I was a student at Colby College in Maine. And I remember uh, uh, my freshman year, I was you know, involved in way too many things. Um, but there were these upperclassmen who were kept saying, you got to go to Dr. Allen's Bible study. You got to go to Dr. Allen's Bible study. And finally, uh, my friend uh, Nico uh, uh, put me in his car and drove me on a Sunday night to Dr. Allen's Bible study, despite all the homework I had to do, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> and I met Dr. Allen and Sharon and their daughter, Catherine. Um, now, Dr. Allen... Uh, has always been a curmudgeon. He was kind of born that way, it seems. You know, you show up to his house, and he opens the door, and he says, you're late. And we say, we're 10 minutes early. And he says, all right, all right, come on in. Um, and then Sharon is like, welcome. Oh, it's so good to see all of you. Come on into the kitchen. And they have these incredible desserts. Every week, a new, incredible, delectable creation. And we just dig in. Uh, and I, 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 I would often philosophize, do I come for the Bible study or the dessert? I just don't know. I, couldn't, I could never figure it out, ultimately. Um, and then after enjoying our, our, our treats, we would uh, walk into the living room, you know, with a steaming cup of hot cocoa. It was Maine, of course, so hot cocoa. And we just settle in to this plush living room carpet. And Dr. Allen would open his Bible and say, okay, everyone, please turn to Hezekiah. And, you know, a bunch of people would flip pages, and finally someone would be like, there's no book called Hezekiah. And he'd just go, <laughs> And then he'd take us to the passage we were actually there to study. Um, and it, it was powerful. It was just so powerful to dig into, this, into the word with, you know, uh, a geology professor from Colby who'd been studying uh, the scripture with us 30 years at this point, having students over every week. Um, and, you know, each week he would just remind me of this eternal perspective that God was so much bigger, that his plans for my life were so much bigger than uh, the homework I had and the exam and the paper coming up and all the stresses that I had. Um, yeah, I, I came to love scripture at Dr. Allen's and Sharon's house. And one thing that you maybe didn't notice too much at first was their daughter, Catherine, who was always there. And I think she was older than me, but she was very childlike. She had uh, some clear mental and physical disabilities. Um, and she would always uh, sit quietly during the study uh, until around the very end after prayer time, she would say something like, she'd be like, friends, mom, friends. And her mom would say, yes, tomorrow you're going to go see your friends. Uh, and, you know, she had a, a group of friends that she'd spend time with a few days a week. Or she'd say, uh, church, mom, church. And, uh, and she'd say, no, that was this morning, but we'll go to, you know, we'll go to church next week. Uh, and she and Catherine loved being at church because she just loved the worship music. She would just... It was just a joy to her. And, the, and just as you saw, Catherine, you saw just this joy and this happiness with life everywhere she went. It was just a part of who she was. 
you saw this purity and kindness. I never uh, uh, heard her complain or whine or grump about anything ever. <laughs> she was just always so, uh, it, it, was, it was practically angelic. It was really incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, being a, you know, I wasn't from Maine, I would do Thanksgiving at Don and Sharon Allen's house. I call them Dr. Allen, but it's Don Allen. I'd be at their house for Thanksgiving and got to see how their whole family interacted, you know. Um, uh, Catherine was, was kind of fun, too. She, uh, you, you'd notice their kitchen was always perfectly clean. And that was because if they did not put every dish away in its proper place, Catherine would wake up in the middle of the night walk through the kitchen and put everything away. And not in its place, but wherever she found a place for it. So, you know, Sharon would open up a cabinet and be like, there's the spatula. I've been looking for that for six months, right? So, so because of that, they kept a very clean kitchen. Um, and, uh, and, you know, having a curmudgeon for a dad, she was a little bit of a prankster too. You know, we were watching the, the football game, at the, the Thanksgiving football game, and Catherine would sneak up behind her dad as he's like kind of fading fading out and just like stand right behind his ear and go ah. and he'd jump 10 feet in the air and he'd, you know just totally freak out and then you know about 30 minutes later he'd do a similar prank to her and so it was just back and forth all afternoon um, it, it was just uh, beautiful and joyful to be with their family um, now one night Dr. Allen opened this passage, John 9, and started uh, doing this uh, Bible study with us. And then he told us this story about when Catherine was born. They had a lot of kids, a lot of kids, and Catherine was, I, gosh, I don't remember if they'd had six or eight, but they had a lot of kids. Um, and uh, when Catherine was born, and they saw that she had these disabilities, um, uh, Dr. Allen's pastor took him aside and said, what did you do? And he said, I beg your pardon? And he said, what did you do that Catherine was born this way? Was it you or was it your wife? And Dr. Allen, being the curmudgeon that he is, just walked out. Um, but that kind of thing is a shaking thing to have happen to you. Um, and it was John 9 that strengthened him when he read it, reading about this man born blind. And, yeah, this widespread view that's out there that if you, if you get a disease, it's your fault. Some, you did something. Um, and even the 12 disciples, even they think that must be how it is. And they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus provides that corrective. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who reveals truth, who interprets scripture, who tells us who the Father is, he says, neither this man sinned nor his parents. But this happened for the glory of God. So this view that the disciples uh, present um, 
the view that the Pharisees likewise at the end of the passage say you were sinful from birth. That view uh, is, uh, you know, I like to call it karma. That's kind of the karma view that's out there, right? This idea that if you do good, good things happen to you. If you do bad, bad things happen to you. And when I was in ministry with college students um, and you asked them what they believed in, karma was one of the things that came up quite a bit. Such a common way of looking at the world. You know, they'd be like, oh, absolutely, I believe this. If, good thi if you do good things, good things happen to you. It comes around, right? If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. Um, and uh, and I, I got to see that it is, it's a very um, um, tempting <laughs> uh, worldview to have, okay? Especially if you're, you know, a student at an elite college, right? Because... Because what does it mean if you're, like, rising in the world, if your life looks like it's auspicious, it's heading in a great direction? I mean, karma tells you that's because you're a good person. You're a good person. That's why life is going so well. And maybe if you've done some bad things, well, life is going so well. Maybe they weren't really that bad because life is going great. Okay, so it's very convenient in that way. It's also convenient when you see other people who are really suffering from terrible things, because you can just be like, well, they must have done something. They must have done something. So I'm off the hook. I, I'm excused because it doesn't have to do with me. That's their problem. I, if I, I don't want to get in the way of karma here. They're just suffering the consequences of their own decisions. So ah, it's such a convenient worldview to have. Um, and Christians have, uh, I think, I think uh, absorbed this view from the outside culture, too. So we have our own Christian karma view, which is that it's not just the universe or fate that rewards and punishes, but it's God. So we just say, yeah, uh, you know, if bad things happen, God is punishing you for what you've done wrong. Uh, and, uh, you know, this view is really elaborated in the book of Job, where it's completely thrown out. Job, the righteous man, his friends keep saying, you know, just admit the bad thing you've done so you can, you know, so God will restore you. And Job's like, I haven't done anything wrong, folks. Um, but, uh, but it's still, you know, the disciples, the 12 disciples had Job. It didn't stop them from believing it. It's just so uh, natural to believe this. And even we want to believe that the universe is fair that way. <clears throat> And the Pharisees have a contention with Jesus when they see him heal uh, this, this man born blind. And Jesus says he didn't sin. They're like, look, we don't know who you are, Jesus, but we follow Moses. We believe in the Old Testament God. We believe in the Old Testament prophets. Um, you're in disagreement with them. And I mean, if you read what Jesus says, he says, no, 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 no. God's my father. I know who he is. And the Old Testament, that's my Bible. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And so we have this conundrum, this paradox, maybe a contradiction, um, that on the one hand, Jesus teaches that uh, the Old Testament 
is God's truth. And on the other hand, he teaches that we cannot presume that a disease is a punishment for someone's sins. Okay? But don't we look at the Old Testament and see God afflicting people with disease? So how do you square that? These two propositions, Old Testament is real and true, disease is not a punishment for someone's sins. Um, and so I have, I have a, a slide that, that, that has it up there, and, uh, and you know, this is where uh, most Christians uh, just end up picking one proposition over the other. They either say, look, I, I'm just going to kind of forget that Jesus said this in John 9 and believe the Old Testament is the truth <laughs> and God does punish. <laughs> or I'm going to uh, believe that, that uh, disease is not a punishment from God. And the Old Testament, that's old. <laughs> that's outdated. Let's just forget about that part of the Bible. It's not helpful anymore. Okay? And so what we, have to, what we have to see is, is there a way to integrate these things? Was Jesus just holding on to a contradiction like this? Or is there a resolution? And what I have been doing and what I'd like to kind of show you this morning is a deep dive into the Bible, into researching where disease shows up and what does that teach us about God and how he interacts with disease? Um, and, you know, if, if the slides aren't working, that's okay. You can just take it down. Don't need to dis distract anybody. Um, so a deep dive. I, and, I, and, yeah, I've, I've spent uh, a lot of time flipping through pages, trying to find disease wherever it shows up. Uh, and, and, like, these are the results. Is it comprehensive? Ah, it's just me. So, uh, so who knows? I'm sure I've missed a lot of places. I can't bring up everything. Um, and I am a little afraid it's going to be like a fire hose of names and scriptures coming at you uh, for the rest of the morning. Uh, but, you know, hold on to your, you know, hold on to your, uh, your, your, uh, your I, I don't know, put, buckle your seatbelts, whatever. <clears throat> okay, so here, here's the, fir the first thing I found. Um, that if you look over the whole Bible... The Bible has plenty of good, innocent, faithful people who have diseases. They're all over the place. And if you look at where it shows up, it's, it's you know, no spiritual cause is named for the disease. Uh, no spiritual remedy. Um, it's, there's no sinful act, lack of faith, lack of prayer. N nothing. They just have diseases. So examples, you have Paul. Paul gets an illness and has to stop at a city he wasn't planning to be at, Galatia. You have Epaphroditus. Oh, great. Here they are. We have Epaphroditus, who's, uh, and, and I, I don't want to go too in-depth. Each of these things has such a cool story, but I, I'm going to overwhelm you if I tell them all. So Epaphroditus, who's commended for uh, his missionary work despite the disease he gets along the way. Uh, Trophimus, who Paul has to leave behind because he gets sick on the missionary journey. Uh, Timothy, who Paul says, dude, you're getting sick too much. Add some wine to your drinking water. That'll help. Uh, I mean, it's so commonplace, right? There's no, no, no more prayer or, or, you know, cast out the demons or, or whatever. It's just like, you know, you got to work on your diet here. Um, and, and then we have Old Testament passages. We have, uh, 
you know, really huge historical figures. We have Sarah, who could not conceive. Isaac, who uh, becomes blind. Jacob, who, who gets sick and dies. Um, Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets sick. And God tells him, hey, this sickness, it's going to kill you. And Hezekiah says, but God, I've been so faithful. Please don't take away my life. And God says, okay, I'm going to heal you. You get 15 more years. Okay. So, you know, total opposite, not confessing sin, but confessing faithfulness. Okay, wow. And then we have Elisha. This is my favorite example. Um, Elisha the prophet does all these miracles, gets sick and dies, but he's still so holy, so full of the Holy Spirit, that when someone drops a dead body in his grave, the guy comes back to life because he touches Elisha's bones. Okay? How profound is that, that, that God could be active even in a dead man at that time? Um, that someone who got a disease is still holy and full of the presence of God. Ah, man, it's crazy. Um, and so then you have uh, kind of philosophical examples, like the parable in Matthew 25, where Jesus identifies with the sick uh, he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, for I was sick and you looked after me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So he's not distancing himself from the sick. He's saying, whatever you did for someone who's sick, you did for me. Wow. You know, so, so you start to feel like, wow, this is a complete paradigm shift on disease from the kind of uh, things in the air that we get about what it's actually like in the Bible. Um, and so the conclusion I had from surveying the scriptures is that the vast majority of diseases mentioned in the Bible are not punishes, punishments from God. They're just not. Um, and, and so it begs the question, well, what about those times where God does afflict people with disease? Because that does happen in passages in the Old Testament. Well, what do we do? And so I want to look closely at those special occasions. And the first one I want to look at is this story with Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm so happy that Kelly did this children's sermon on Daniel 3 and showed you, you know, crazy Nebuchadnezzar who's throwing people into furnaces and stuff. Because this example is Daniel chapter 4, the very next chapter. And this, this story is about Nebuchadnezzar's faith awakening, where he turns to God. And, and here's what happens with, with Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> he has this crazy dream uh, that either he can't understand or he doesn't want to understand. And he, you know, he brings all his, all his, dream, uh, his dream interpreters forward, and they're like, we have no idea what that means. Um, and maybe they do, but they just don't like telling him bad news. It's, it's not clear. Um, and so then he's like, okay, I got to get the prophet Daniel because he always tells me the truth no matter how bad it is. And so he brings Daniel forward uh, and Daniel interprets the disease and uh, interprets the dream. And this is, uh, you know, chapter 4, verses 4 through 27, um, and where it's just like it explains the dream and it's this warning, Nebuchadnezzar, you're way too proud and arrogant. And if you don't change your ways, 
um, I am going to give you a mental illness, and you're going to be crazy for seven years until you admit that you are not God, that the Most High God is God. And uh, Daniel says, so if I were you, <laughs> I would try to change. I'd be nice to the poor. <laughs> I'd try to have justice in your kingdom. You know, try to turn things around. Maybe God will relent. Okay? So that's the warning. Okay? And then we have uh, verses 28 to 33. The warning is ignored. <laughs> and he says, aren't I the best king ever? I am the ruler of the universe. And then a voice from heaven comes and says, you are getting mental illness right now. And he goes crazy for seven years, just like it said. And so uh, the warning ha is ignored. The disease happens. Um, and in the midst of that, you know, a voice from heaven, like, declares that this is happening right now. Um, and then uh, in verse 33, Four to thirty. Sure enough, seven years later, he he uh, looks up to heaven and admits, "I am not God." He humbles himself before God, and then he writes this letter uh, that goes out to his entire empire, declaring that the Most High God is the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow, that is that's the story. Um, and I have looked at this and seen where else. Uh, disease, God's uh, uh, disease afflicting happens. And it, this is kind of like a pattern. I feel like we're seeing a pattern here in how, in how it happens. We have, uh, we have uh, a warning that comes ahead of time that's very explicit. And then if, there, if the warning is not heeded, the disease happens exactly like it was warned. And then uh, finally, there's that third part where there's repentance and restoration and people see the glory of God. More people turn to him. And so you start to see, I'm not sure if disease is really a punishment in these situations or it's more like a corrective, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, you, you saw in that, in that slide there that there was this parentheses around the voice from heaven. That's because I'm not sure yet in my studies whether this is, like, part of the pattern or it just shows up a lot. Where it's like, if you're not sure whether this disease is from God, the angel or the voice from heaven gives it away. It's, like, really clear. <laughs> um, but you see that clarity. You know, it's, there's no sneakiness on God's part. He's being really, really explicit. So clear warning of pending disease. Disease happens as warned. And then there's repentance and or people turn to God. So there are three passages um, or, or stories where um, people often get hung up. And they see, um, see these passages as like punishment from God. Um, and Christian karma, really clear in these passages. Um, and I want to look at them. It's, uh, the, the, we have the ten plagues in, in Exodus. We have the blessings and curses uh, around the Ten Commandments at uh, uh, Deuteronomy 28. Um, and then we have this very small pa passage in James 5. 
And these are kinds of passages that people really get hung up, they stumble over, and think, okay, this is teaching Christian karma. Um, but I actually think if you look at it with this pattern in mind that I just showed you, you see that, wow, they, 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 they fit the pattern. <laughs> so you have like the, the ten plagues in Exodus. Um, with the ten plagues in Exodus, um, you read Exodus and you see like, I mean, Moses goes up to Pharaoh and he's like, hey, you've been enslaving these people. You've been committing genocidal acts. And God is here to liberate his people and let them go free. And uh, Pharaoh says, okay, who's next? Who's next? Um, and then Moses says, okay, plague of blood is coming. And Pharaoh says, yeah, 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 yeah. And then in the next passage, <laughs> plague of blood. <laughs> and then uh, Pharaoh says, take it away, take it away. And Moses is like, okay, okay, I'll pray. Lord, take away the plague of blood. Plague of blood goes away, okay? And then you get the, you get the next one. And Moses is like, okay, this time, hailstorm. <laughs> and, and Pharaoh's like, nah, I don't believe you, right? And then, and some of Pharaoh's officials are like, hailstorm, get the animals indoors, right? And Moses is even like, yeah, get them indoors, you know? And then the hailstorm comes. And then Pharaoh's like, I made a big mistake, Moses. Take away the hailstorm. And he's like, okay, God, take away this hailstorm. Hailstorm goes away, right? And, and you see, oh, there's always a clear warning before the plague is unleashed. And it's exactly the plague that was warned. There's no surprises here. Um, and as the story goes on, there's more and more. There's fake repentance on Pharaoh's part. But there's more repentance elsewhere, where Pharaoh's officials say, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Or they say, what can we do to avoid these plagues? Or they say, let the Israelites go. And there's even a passage in Exodus 12, where when Israel is leaving Egypt, many multitudes of people join them and follow God and leave Egypt as well. That's Exodus 12, 38, if you want to read that verse yourself. So this is these mighty acts of God where God is saying, I'm doing this that they may know that I am God. And everyone who turns to God is included into the people of God. It's not just a punishment, it's a corrective. Then we have, uh, moving on to Deuteronomy 28. This is a, a passage where Israel is receiving the Ten Commandments. God comes down and speaks the Ten Commandments on the mountain before them. Uh, Moses uh, reads them the law, recites the law to them from God. And as part of the law, there are these blessings and curses. If they follow God's law, it says they will be blessed with many children, victory in battle, plenty of food to eat, pure water, um, all that. And if they uh, break the commands of God, uh, then there's these warnings, these curses that will come upon them. Um, uh, you know, no children, uh, plenty of diseases, uh, famine and drought, uh, losing battle to your enemies, like on and on and on. And the curses just go on. They go on for like 10 pages. You're just still reading <laughs> all the horrible things that are going to happen. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and 
And in context, this covenant formula was a normal formula of agreement that was used between kings and their subjects. And all this phrasing is like, it's like stock phrasing from 1450 BC. You know, this is how they talked. In fact, Egyptologists and, you know, other scholars have said uh, the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28 help date this as a legitimate document coming out of 1450 BC and not 1,000 or 500 or something like that because the covenant reads like the covenants from that time period rather than covenants of a later date. Um, and the, the, you know, the wild thing is, you know, as they're uh, doing this covenant and hearing these curses, they still turn from God. And, and as they're turning from God, um, they, they see these, these afflictions happen to them. They lose battles. They get diseases. Um, and when those things are happening, uh, famine and plague, often there's a prophet who says, you're breaking the covenant. That's why this is happening. So clear and explicit. And whenever there's repentance, uh, there's restoration and blessing. Um, and ultimately, the breaking of the covenant results in exile at the end of the Old Testament histories. Um, and they're waiting for this rescuer, this restoration. And it's Jesus who fulfills the righteousness of the law. Uh, receiving the blessings for us and taking the curse for us on himself on the cross. But here's what I want to look at for our sakes on this topic when it comes to the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy. That this is contextual. It's for specific people, not for all time. Okay? So first, they weren't talking to you in that passage. They were talking to ancient Israel. So we don't want to take this out of context and make it Christian karma. And secondly, if God had actually followed uh, his rules <laughs> with all the curses, Israel would have been wiped out really fast. And they weren't. And what you see as you're reading through the Old Testament after these blessings and curses are spoken, is not all this punishment and devastation from God. What you actually see, if you have eyes to look, is the grace and the patience of God. So that in Psalm 103, the psalmist reflects and says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's the truth about God. Not that he gives us exactly what we deserve, but that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. There's so much grace and patience from God as he longs to turn our hearts to him. And this disease is a corrective to help us turn our hearts back to God. So then just the last passage in, in James, I'll touch on this very briefly. It talks about when people are sick, you pray for healing. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. And I just want to point out that it doesn't say um, that they're sick because they've sinned. It says if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. 
And I think we can just look at this with humility and say, you know, there are times, rare instances, where God uses disease as a corrective. If you sin, yeah, <laughs> confess, repent, God will forgive you. That's what it says. Whether or not it's connected with, with the disease, and, and yeah, if it is, God, God longs to heal and restore. So let's not turn this into Christian karma. Let's see it through this pattern of warning, um, warning fulfilled, but followed by repentance and restoration. So just some, some takeaways. Um, I hope you see how there's a consistency in the Old Testament and New Testament. That the God of Jesus in the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. It's the same loving and gracious God. Um, I also hope you see how, how devastating it can be when we tell people that their disease is a result of their sin. I just don't think we should ever, I don't think we should ever do that. Um, you know, if it's the case, let God do it. He does a very good job of doing it himself when he means to. Um, otherwise, otherwise, we should treat them as Jesus treats them. You know, Jesus who identifies with the sick. You know, when we see someone who's ill, what if we said, that's what Jesus looks like? That's the one I'm called to love. And you know, there, there was something about, uh, about Catherine. You know, that, that verse, um, treasure in broken vessels. The gospel is treasure in broken vessels. That's, that's just what it looked like, you know? She was just so beautiful, so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of the goodness of God. So let's put Christian karma in the grave and instead let's turn to God in gratitude, the God who's so good to us, who's so gracious, who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but longs for a relationship with us, longs to pour out blessing upon us. An amazing, amazing God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your long-suffering, your patience. Lord, so often we want to make snap judgments, but Lord, you are patient, slow to judge, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. Lord, we know that there is a coming judgment at the end of all things, but until then, Lord, we know that you want all to turn to you and be saved. That's the God we have that we know. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us see with your eyes to know you as Jesus knows you. To love you and your people as Jesus loves you and your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.